A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Just before we get started with today's love letter to the British Isles, I wanted to let you know about the latest video podcast on my new Patreon site. It's about the incredible lives of people like Joe Wright, the extraordinary linguist, and Abraham Lincoln, the 16th President of the United States of America. People who are beacons in history, showing us the power of drive, determination, and the written word. So for a small fee, sign up to my Patreon site. Help support the making of this podcast and get your hands on fascinating new videos every week. In the meantime, here's the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. Our landscape, our British Isles. One way or another, it swallows us all without a trace. In this podcast, we're walking across the shifting sands of time. In 1548, a cry for help went up and it was answered. And to this day, that same help and guidance is still being given. Deadly tides racing in faster than a horse can gallop. Mill graves that have caught and dragged many to their deaths. A breathtakingly beautiful landscape that's frightening strong and irresistible. A place that reminds us of the deep history and elemental power that's here in these British Isles. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Last week you took us to a majestic castle that epitomises the concept of the last stand. Where are we this week? It's so different, so different. We're walking side by side with a guide whose job was created almost 500 years ago, striding across a vast, treacherous bay where one false move could see you paying for it with your life. It's a stunning place, somewhere that clears the head and reminds us of our place in the natural world. We're in lovely Lancashire, on Morecambe Bay Sands. We're in Morecambe Bay Sands, Paul, which is between like North Lancashire and South Cumbria, on the west side of, of the north of England. 
we'll get to it in a moment, but I should say, really by way of a kind of an introduction, I often think about the way in which our landscape of the British Isles feels incredibly safe. You know, you watch the news around the world, I pay a lot of attention to, say, New Zealand, because I've got friends there, and they're, they're always having events like earthquakes, sometimes very severe. Uh, there's all sorts of things, they call it the shaky islands down there, and they joke with you about making sure you've got something to hold on to in the shower, because earthquakes can come at any time. And all around the world, you know, you look at places where there's danger, but you look at our landscape and, and it feels so soft. Uh, you know, we don't have earthquakes or volcanic eruptions. The climate, courtesy of, of the Gulf Stream and the North Atlantic Drift, it's ridiculously kind, given how far north we actually sit on the globe. It should be a lot colder here, but the warm water that we're kind of uh, poached in keeps the climate lovely and soft, makes everywhere fertile and green. We don't have any dangerous wildlife. There's no bears or, or lions or tigers. There's the odd poisonous adder that you might, if you're lucky, see going across your path on a forest walk but that's only a thrill uh, and even if you were to get nipped by an adder unless you're a, a baby or, or someone who's very very ill it's not dangerous in that way so you can get tricked into thinking it's a very benign place which it is in terms of its geography but th there are still places where you can get into proper bother not on account of bad men not on account of violence but on account of the landscape, which I think possibly most people overlook for most of the time. But it really gets to me because the British landscape, metaphorically speaking, has, has swallowed so much history. From the first love letter that we did back in Haysborough, you know, it's a million years of, of human story of one sort or another. And our landscape has swallowed it all. Empires and kings and queens and wars and battles, it's all happened and yet it's all kind of sunk out of sight, if you like. You've got to go looking for it, but it's down there. It's, it's like the, I think of the bog bodies, you know, that turn up in Scandinavia and sometimes in, in the British Isles in Ireland, you know, those, those bodies that have been turned black by the tannins in the peat and they've been squashed flat by the weight of time. And there's so much lost in our landscape and I think in that context about Morecambe Bay Sands because it's beautiful you stand and you look out at the bay there and it's stunning you know when the sun's on it it's heart-stoppingly beautiful it's a product of the last ice age actually when the ice sheets when the when the glaciers were retreating and melting they sort of left behind dumped all these thick sands and sediments which are many many tens of meters thick it's a huge natural kind of bowl of wet sand it covers about 120 square miles so in British landscape terms it's it's very very big there are five rivers that drain into the Irish Sea there the Kent uh, the Keir the Leven the Loon and the Wire and they're sculpting the sand and the sediment all the time if you look, you'll find aerial footage or aerial photographs of Morecambe Bay Sands. And, and from above, because of all the waterways threading across it, it has the look from above of a piece of tattered fabric, you know, something that's been torn to shreds. That's how it appears from, from above. And those rivers and waterways, they're moving all the time. 
If you've seen like a sidewinder snake or something moving across the sand, that kind of sinuous movement. So all these rivers, you know, they, they move. Their position's never in the same place two days running. It's always on the move, so that the landscape's kind of shimmering like a mirage. What makes it dangerous? So there's a combination of factors, really. They say, and it's not the only place in the British Isles, but on Morecambe Bay Sands, they say that the tide comes in faster than a horse can gallop. And it can. We talked about uh, Lindisfarne, the, the Holy Island, and how you can walk from the mainland across the sand. Well, they say something similar there. That's why you've got to pay attention, because you know the water comes in, and once the tide has turned and it's coming, you can't outrun it. You're going to end up swimming, if you're lucky, or worse. It happens all the time, because it's this vast, beautiful expanse. People walk out into it, and you can be standing... You know, you could be standing with a, a toddler on your shoulders, you know, with your wife, your wife or your husband's hand in yours, you know, <laughs> thinking romantic thoughts. And then behind you, some channel that you didn't know was there has, has filled up with cold seawater, you know, that's too deep to walk through. And then the tide's coming in as well. So you're now, you're now surrounded by water. It happens all the time. And people get into desperate danger there. So it's, it's a bit of landscape you've got to take seriously. But I, I find that exciting here in the British Isles to know there's a place you've got to be wary of because it'll kill you. That adds another layer of fascination, another texture to the place. And a few years ago now, I was filming Coast and one of my very, one of many memorable days I spent with the Queen's Guide to the Sands a guy called Cedric Robinson. And he was quite an elderly man when I encountered him. It was a few years ago now. The, the truth is that Morecambe Bay Sands have always been dangerous and people have always been getting caught out there. People moving, moving with goods, maybe moving with wagons of cargo, you know, taking a shortcut across the sands from one place to another. And eventually in the 1500s, an appeal was made to the Duchy of Lancaster and a guide was appointed for the first time, actually, in 1548, during the reign of Edward VI, who was uh, Henry VIII's son, who didn't live very long, but it was during his short time on the throne that this guide, this first guide of the Sands was appointed. And Cedric was the 25th in the line. And I, I love that, that since the time of Edward VI and Henry VIII, there's only been 25 people have held the post, because once you're appointed, you know, it's kind of yours for life. And the Duchy of Lancaster, I believe, still pays you £15 a year for the job. But much better than the money, you get to live in the guide's cottage. You get to live on the guide's cottage, which overlooks the, the sands so that the guide can keep an eye on it. Cedric was appointed in 1963. In 2019, he was actually retired. And he's been replaced more recently by a guy called Michael Wilson, who's a fisherman. But it was still the legend that is Cedric Robinson when I went out. And he's got a lifetime of experience of the sand. And he has led hundreds of thousands of people on guided walks. That's what he does. You make contact with him and he'll, he'll gather together a group of people. Uh, you know, and when there's enough people, you know, that want to go at the same time, he'll lead them on a walk, a safe walk out onto the, the sands. And I went with him one day. It was the day before one of his scheduled walks, I think from Arnside to Kent's Bank, a, a kind of an eight-mile walk across the sands. And as was his 
habit. He, he went out the day before to mark the way. And we went out, I helped him, we carried armfuls of what they call brobs, B-R-O-B, and they're um, branches of laurel, you know, from a laurel bush. And he kept them, he used laurel because even when they've been cut and the foliage turns brown and withers, the leaves stay, they don't fall off the branch, so they're more visible. So he would walk and every few tens of metres he would stick one of these brobs, like a branch with the leaves on it, into the sand so that we were leaving this line of them behind us and it, it meant that it was a visual path that people would be able to, to follow. And while we walked, he explained to me in great graphic detail how dangerous the place could be. I mean, when I was with him, it was a beautiful, sunshiny day and it was hard to imagine that the place posed any threat to life, but... As he was saying, it's all about high tides, maybe bad weather, strong winds. Unpredictably, and in the in the blink of an eye, the place can turn dangerous on you. And for example, he also showed me a hidden danger out there, which is quicksand. Now, how, how exciting is quicksand? In the movies, when people wander into quicksand, that's always a great terrifying moment. Well, quicksand exists for real in many places, but it's certainly there in the Morecambe Bay Sands, and it... It's, it's because when the tide goes out, where the tide has moved some sand and sediment around, it can be lying in a hollow. But it's so saturated, the sand, that although it looks solid, it's not. In that part of the world, they call them melgraves. But it's also described, that the texture of the sand is more accurately, more pleasingly described, really, as cow belly. <laughs> if you imagine like a, a cow's udders, that kind of wobbly, jelly softness. He, he pointed one out, said it could see the Melgrave. I couldn't tell it was different from any other area of sand, which is what, but he could see it. And so with him watching me, I kind of gingerly stepped out onto the Melgrave. And sure enough, it was like walking out onto a rice pudding. You felt like you were walking on the skin over something soft. And within a few moments, a few seconds, I started to sink into it. If you're only an ankle deep, you can get yourself out. But if you stay there long enough to go in up to your knee, just one knee, just one leg in up to your knee, you cannot get out by yourself. The nature of the Melgrave means that you're, you're held and you cannot summon the human strength to get out on your own. If you're in two legs up to your knees, the game's a bogey. You need to get pulled out by a winch. You'd need to bring in a, a vehicle with a winch on it to haul you out with that kind of mechanical strength. And if you were to bend down and put your hands in to try and pull your foot out, before you know where you are, your hands are stuck. So now you're bent double. <laughs> what a predicament. You're now hands and feet in the quicksand. You can't move and the tide's coming in. And this is how people get caught out all of the time. And were you, were you, Did you feel scared? Well, no, he, he only let me go into the very edge of it. And as soon as I was in up to my ankles, he got me out, which I was thankful for. But people listening will possibly remember the Chinese cockle pickers who drowned. 23 of them died in one terrible night in 2004. They had been walked out by their gangmaster. It was all illegal. I mean, the cockle beds are there are, are as old as, you know, they're as old as the hills. They've been there since the, the last ice age. And people have traditionally gone out and harvested the... The, the cockles, you know, you take out planks of wood and they stand on the boards and they, they wobble them and the cockles come up 
the cockles rise and they, and they harvest them by the ton, fill up ton bags of them. And these poor souls had been taken out on goodness knows what kind of slave wages. I don't know. And they were caught out. The gangmaster got it wrong and the tides came in. So in one terrible night, 23 Chinese cockle pickers died. A terrible reminder of just how dangerous that landscape is. In the past, it was horse and carts would get caught, wagons would go, the horses would get taken, the wagons would go. And even now, hapless people will go out in their four by fours, big expensive Range Rovers and Toyotas, and they go, never to be seen again, <laughs> swallowed, swallowed whole. So it's a place of incredible beauty and incredible danger. And to know and to be reminded that here in Britain, these soft, safe British Isles, there are places that you can go. It's like some of Ben Nevis. People die up there every year because they go up in inadequate footwear and clothing and the weather turns on them and they, they die. Well, likewise, in the Morecambe Bay Sands, you can get taken. And that, that fascinates me. That that too is another aspect of these British Isles that, that I love so well. Because our everyday lives are so protected from nature, we don't tend to think of it as being such a deadly force, do we? That's right, that's right. You get, you get seduced. You get seduced into thinking that all our, all our beaches are, are safe bathing and you just won't come to any harm. That's a mistake. But the other aspect of it, I think really the other perspective, is the depth of history that's there just as it is everywhere. There's a 14th century castle. There's a little island right on the sort of north northwest edge, northwest tip of the bay. There's Peel Island, P-I-E-L, and there's a castle on it called Peel Castle. And it was built and used by the abbot and monks of uh, Furness, nearby Furness, and it was always a dubious place. It has a bit of a shady reputation, even though it was been run operated and used by men of the cloth, men of the church. Its loyalty to the crown and its belief in paying taxes was questionable. And they were, they were in the business of moving wool about. They had flocks of sheep and they were, they were moving wool to the continent and, generally speaking, avoiding taxes. So it was, a, it was a shady place. And in 1487, Peel Castle was the rallying point for a last hurrah of the Wars of the Roses. Okay, the Wars of the Roses that we considered with Lady Margaret Beaufort in Westminster Abbey and how she was the mother of Henry VII. Well, Henry VII was king in 1487. He had ended the Wars of the Roses. But nonetheless, there was a last attempt by the House of York to knock him off because he, he was seen as a usurper. Because of his background, Henry Tudor, and his only the vaguest connection to the House of Lancaster... Many people early on in his reign, even possibly most people, regarded him as a usurper. And there was an attempt to rally a last Yorkist attempt to replace him on the throne. It's quite a bizarre one. They gathered around an unfortunate ten-year-old called Lambert Simnel, a wee boy. And he was the, he was the son of an Oxford tradesman or craftsman. But they, they started parading him around, these Yorkists. They started saying that he was actually Edward Earl of Warwick which would have made him a nephew of, of Edward IV, the Yorkist king. Edward IV was a, a legal claimant on the throne, 
but th- this was just a, a look-alike Lambert Simnel. I don't think he even looked particularly like the Yorkist prince. But they were parading him as a claimant to the throne, and a, an army 8,000 strong gathered around him. And they, they mustered at, at Peel Castle, and they set out. And it was a tragic story. Henry VII brought his experienced army to bear and trampled them into the grass. Uh, there was a, a single battle at a place called Stoke Field, and the whole thing was wiped out, and the, the, the ringleaders were butchered, you know, hung, drawn, and quartered, and all the rest of it. Strangely, almost for the, by the standards of the time, Henry VII saw Lambert Simnel himself for the kind of puppet that he had been. He's just a boy. Uh, and he took, he took him into his household. And Lambert Simnel actually lived out his life, started out in the kitchens, and, and latterly was a falconer for Henry VII. And he lived to serve Henry VIII as well. He lived and married and, and, and had a comparatively long and peaceful life after this unfortunate attempt at a, a, a coup. What an extraordinary twist in life to get sucked into history like that. I know, I know. Um, he was just a patsy. He was just, a, he was just Lambert Simnel was just a useful pawn. Unfortunately for him, at least, you know, Henry VII understood that, recognised the fact that it wasn't his fault and took him into the royal household. But there's, there's more history. If you're interested in this idea of, of depth of history, in 1933, the Midland Hotel opened up and the Midland Hotel was an Art Deco masterpiece. The artwork's inside by a, well, a very controversial artist, as it turns out, called Eric Gill, there were some artworks inside that were of the Art Deco style, and the building itself was regarded as a bit of an Art Deco masterpiece, if you're interested in that kind of thing. I, I filmed in there as well. It had fallen on hard times. It was shabby and tired, uh, but a, a group of businessmen had taken it on, and they were in the business of bringing it back, uh, you know, br- bringing it back to life. But the Midland Hotel was once incredibly glamorous, because, believe it or believe it not, Morecambe Bay in the 1920s and 30s was known as the Naples of the North because it, because it bore a, a resemblance to the Bay of Naples in Italy. Possibly it was never as warm as, as the real Bay of Naples, but it had that look about it. And uh, the Midland Hotel, people come in there and sign in their names in the register included Coco Chanel and Noel Coward and Laurence Olivier. It was one of the most glamorous places at which, in which to be seen. It was quite the place, so the, so the glitterati were there. And so, in some ways, metaphorically and literally, Morecambe Bay Sands has swallowed the lot. Pretend princes, glitterati and all manner of others over the years have been swallowed whole by Morecambe Bay Sands and it's a reminder simultaneously of the danger of some parts of the landscape and the fact that our landscape, our British Isles, one way or another, it swallows us all without a trace. the Hanseatic League's power and intent began to crystallise. By the 13th century, it had spun rich trading routes from the Baltic Sea to the British Isles. It brought great wealth and development to the Norfolk town of Lynn, 
which became the third most important port in England and for almost three centuries helped the league dominate trade across Northern Europe. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive video podcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and who continue to make these aisles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.